0: Well, if, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Micah, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a visitor with us, we're especially delighted that you've joined us today. We uh, would love for you to fill out a visitor card if you haven't already, and you can drop that um, in the offering baskets when they go by. Uh, but there's also a way to uh, scan a QR code on the front of the bulletin if you'd rather... Uh, um, kind of reach out to us that way. But we'd love to uh, just uh, the opportunity to have the opportunity to follow up with you and get to know you better and pray for you and know how we can pray for you. Uh, so we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Um, also, uh, today we're returning uh, to our study of, of King Saul uh, from 1 Samuel 9 to 15. We're going to be in chapter 13 today. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, uh, we're going to be in First uh, Samuel 13. Also, before I pray, uh, I had just a quick sad announcement to make. Uh, if you uh, know Harold Wilson, a sweet man who's been attending our church for a while, um, he passed away this week. And so uh, be praying for Harold and, and his family. If you would like more information on on attending uh, his funeral service, reach out to to me or to uh, Gary and we can tell you more about that. But man, this place is uh, not going to be the same without Harold. He's a wonderful, wonderful, very sweet man um, who I love dearly. So anyway, be praying for for Harold's family. Let's pray and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, uh, I do just thank you for the season that we had uh, with Harold. Uh, We just really love him and and are grateful for him. We Um, are praying for his entire family, including his nephew, Todd. And, um, Lord, I pray that they would know how much we love them. And, and again, we're just grateful for a season with Harold. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would just be comforting them. Lord, as we turn now to the study of your word, in, in many ways I think there's a real weight to this passage. And this command, this charge to wait on the Lord is so difficult no doubt everyone in this room is waiting on you for something, and there's challenges to that waiting. And so, Lord, I pray that we would really glean the wisdom that we need to from the life of King Saul, that we would not go the way that he goes, that we would not put limits on you and limits on, uh, on our waiting, but that we would just trust you in all things, that we would push into uh, anything that is causing waiting to be difficult, that we wouldn't run from this season. Lord, I pray uh, to that end that your Spirit would come, that he would fill this room and and do the work that really only he can do of of convicting us of sin where we need conviction, of giving us encouragement where we need uh, encouragement, uh, of giving us eyes to see with faithful eyes where we lack uh, belief. So, Lord, Spirit, come and, and do that work today. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, this is maybe the understatement of the year, but waiting is hard. And Steve and Sarah described their adoption journey as a graduate degree and learning how to wait on the Lord. Uh, they adopted their daughter from a country in Africa, and, and everything took longer than what they expected. Even uh, uh, getting into the country, getting permission. Uh, to adopt her took longer. Uh, over and over again, they would have an official slow walk paperwork or cancel a meeting, or, or they even at one point waffled on uh, letting the girl leave to come to America. At one point, uh, Steve just kind of ran out of time. He, he ran out of the time uh, that his work uh, gave him to go over there, and he had to fly back to America for work, and then Sarah remained in Africa by herself uh, waiting to adopt their daughter. And every step of their journey Sarah was praying for God's help, and, and, and nothing went according to her timetable. Nothing went according, her, according to her heart's desire, and, and, and she uh, longed more than anything just to scoop up that little girl and head to America to start their life together, but, but she didn't run from the, the lessons that God was trying to teach her on waiting. She realized that she was just going to have to wait on the Lord and waiting as hard. And so she decided just to push into it. And in that hotel room in Africa all by herself, she would just cry out to the Lord, and she would just lay her desires before the Lord, wanting that daughter to, to come home with her. And, and, but she also would cry out in faithfulness, believing that God was in control of that process, believing that God was working good in that process, knowing that he was working good in, in all of this waiting. She didn't run from the waiting, but she allowed him to sanctify her through the journey. First Samuel is all about waiting on the Lord. It's this call to wait on the Lord, but as we all know, waiting is hard. And, and waiting's hard for a series of reasons, right? Like at one level, it's hard because it goes against our, our fleshly desires. We want what we want and we want it when we want it, right? Waiting's also difficult because waiting always costs us something. It costs us time, it costs us relationships, it costs us money. Whatever it costs us, waiting costs us something. But also waiting is difficult because those around us who who are speaking into our lives, many times they're going to view waiting as foolishness. And so we're going to feel this pressure to compromise instead of waiting on the Lord. But in the end, we're going to see that it's foolish not to wait on the Lord. Because when we don't wait on the Lord, it opens us up to the Lord's discipline. If you're new with us, we've been in this study of the life of King Saul this summer through through chapters 9 to 15. And, And maybe if you're looking for a theme of his life, it's that he was blinded. He was blinded by the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of the word. And not only was Saul blinded, but really the whole nation was blinded. You see, the nation saw a problem. that They saw, looked around them and saw the wisdom of the world was is if they only had a human king, then all their problems would be solved. So they were looking for a human solution to their problems. And so God gave them what they asked. He gave them a king according to the wisdom of the world. Like he looked the part. He was tall. He was handsome is what we learned about him. But we also learned that there were some some red flags going on. There were these subtle things at the the beginning of the story in in chapter 9 and 10 that there were these little check engine lights that were popping up. There was something off about Saul on the inside. On the outside, he looked the part. But on the inside, there were some real troubling signs. He 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 had no idea who the prophet Samuel was. He was this man, the most famous man of the nation, and he didn't know who he was, which was a clue that, that, that he had probably spiritual apathy. He didn't really care about the things of the Lord. There were examples of him lacking kind of intellectual in, intrigue. He, he was quick to quit. He lacked courage. He was overcome by fear. So there were these, these things on the inside of Saul that were becoming a red flag. But, but as we step into these uh, final chapters of Saul's life. We're also coming out of, of chapter 11, which is really the climax of his reign. He, he's now king. He set up his army. There, there's these victories. He has this great victory. And, and so Saul is kind of beginning to figure it out. He, he's beginning to get into a good rhythm of, of being a king. But, but starting here in, in chapter 13, we're going to begin to slide down. We've talked about Saul as, as kind of a foolish character. And really from this moment on, he's going to be increasingly foolish. He's going to be increasingly sliding down into foolishness. There's kind of three turns I want you to see to this passage today. And the first one is, is waiting on the Lord begins in the heart. Look at the first four verses with me. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in, in the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan at, at Geba and, and Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet through all the land, saying, Here, Let the Hebrews hear. And all And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called called out to join Saul at Gilgal. The first thing I want you to see is, if you were following along in a different translation, verse 1 might have been a little bit different uh, in your translation. I use the English Standard Version or the ESV. The ESV and the New King James and the King James translate this uh, the, the way I just read it. But if you have the NIV or the CSB or even the NASB, they translate it a little bit different. What the ESV is doing is translating it in, in, in a in a more literal way where, where it doesn't include that, that he was 30 years old or that he reigned for 40 or 42 years. But if you're using one of those other translations, that's added in there. Now, those other translations, I think, are probably more accurate than the ESV on, on getting to uh, what, they, what the author was trying to communicate. But again, the ESV takes a little more literal reading, and it doesn't in- include those years in it. Now, chasing, I just chased that in case you uh, have one of those ver- uh, versions that really doesn't have much to do with the story or the point of anything, except to say well, we're entering into a new season of Saul's reign. In this new season, uh, like we've said, Saul is beginning to fulfill kind of this charge of what a king ought to be doing. He's raised up an army, he's defending his nation, he's attacking the enemies around him. He's doing what a king ought to be doing. Now if you, uh, maybe to get a lay of the land here, if you were to look at a map of ancient Egypt, or ancient Israel... Uh, all of this is happening in a very uh, very close proximity uh, to each other if you've ever been to Israel you know that it's a very small country it's way smaller than the than the state of Texas okay and so all of this is happening just within miles of each other and so what we what we know about the map here is that the Philistines are in this town that, that is really located in the heartland of the nation of Israel it's pretty close to the border of the tribe of Benjamin to the south and then the tribe of Judah which is right next to it, which is pretty close to uh, the modern-day city of Israel. So this is right in the middle of the nation. And so that's part of why it was a real threat. But then the other areas where, uh, where Saul uh, sets up camp and then where Jonathan set up camp, is they're a little bit closer into the city of Israel. And, and if you were to see it on a map, what Saul is trying to do is he's trying to kind of block off roads for them to then go into Gilgal and, and take over the city. One thing else to note here, uh, this town, Giba, it has significant because this is one of the uh, the priestly towns, so it 's linked to the worship of God now if you 're following along in the story and if you know anything about King Saul and then later King David, Jonathan is a very important character in that story but But Jonathan is now coming onto to the scene now if you know anything about jonathan he 's a, he's a heroic character for a lot of reasons as we as the story progresses, and we begin to see uh, kind of uh, examples of his heroism here. If you're tracking the math, Jonathan has half the number of soldiers as his dad does. But it's Jonathan who, who steps in probably, I think, on his own initiative and defeats uh, the Philistines. The, the most important thing I want you to see in these opening verses has to do with the trumpet blast. Jonathan goes in, he kills the Philistines, and then there's this trumpet blast. The trumpet blast kind of served two things. First off, it was simply kind of a call to arms come and, and participate in, in, in this war against the Philistines. But the second thing is, is that it, it was spreading news of a victory. Now, the thing I want you to notice here, maybe you caught it, but notice uh, how, how Saul, uh, notice the good news about the victory that goes out. Who, who is it that is communicated to the nation that won the battle? It was Saul, right? But, but if you look up above that, it wasn't Saul who won the battle. It was his son, Jonathan. Now, now listen, this is, skept, you know, this is speculation on, okay, why did, why did he say Saul instead of Jonathan? Now, now maybe he justified it and said, listen, in, in some degree, it was me because I'm, I'm the king of everything, and so it's my victory. Maybe he justified it by saying, listen, it's my son. I taught him all that he knows. Or, or maybe he said, listen, I gave the orders for it. But at the end of the day, it wasn't Saul who won the victory. It was Jonathan. But Saul was quick to uh, take credit for the victory. I can't pat on that just to say, I think it's a red flag. It's a check engine light of something wrong or something off in Saul's heart. Now listen, the the point of this uh, entire chapter is is that God is going to take the kingdom away from Saul. Okay, But it starts uh, with something in Saul's heart. He, he's not going to wait on the Lord. His behaviors, what he does on the outside is not waiting on the Lord, but that's connected to what's going on on the inside. On the inside, he doesn't have a heart that's willing to wait on the Lord. So the, the, the problem that we're going to see in the next section of him not waiting on the Lord is connected to the fact that on the inside, he doesn't have a heart desiring to wait on the Lord. Friend, the charge of this passage is to wait on the Lord. And before you evaluate if you're waiting on the Lord, you need to ask, what's going on on the inside? On the inside, are you willing to wait on the Lord? Okay, waiting on the Lord then moves to the hands. Starting in verse 5, we read, The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Let's stop right here. And what I want you to see is that Jonathan defeats the Philistines, And then the Philistines respond with this overwhelming force. This huge army then invades ancient Israel. And as a result, the Israelites are overcome by fear. It's like the sand on the seashore, the number of Philistines who are invading them now. And they are overcome by fear and soldiers are beginning to scatter. They're beginning to desert the army. Verse 8, he waited seven days. The time appointed by Samuel. And Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. Verse 9. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, And that you did not come within the days appointed. And that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. And then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gaba of Benjamin. Let's stop right there. In, In order to maybe properly set up this scene, it's important to note how he got to uh, he, how he got to uh, Gilgal, where he was. You see, the the prophet told him to lead uh, to leave Michmash. Now, if he would have stayed, if you're tracking this, if he would have stayed, he probably would have died. This huge army would have come in, and it, and it likely would have killed Saul. So here, the prophet, God through the prophet, is actually extending grace to King Saul. He's protecting him, even by moving him to this new location. But what the prophet Samuel is doing is he's setting up a test. He wants to see if King Saul will actually wait on the Lord. So he, he uh, and he's skeptical of Saul's devotion to the Lord. He's skeptical if Saul will actually wait on the Lord. Now we've seen this all the way through uh, the story that, that the prophet is really skeptical if he's, fully devoted to the Lord. He seems half-hearted in his devotion. He seems compromised in his devotion. And so he sets up this test to determine if he is half-hearted or if he is completely devoted to following the Lord. Now now that point's important because that's how you determine if you or someone else is truly devoted to the Lord. Like, Like when there's a test and it costs you something to follow the Lord or to wait on the Lord, That's when you know you're truly devoted to the Lord. Or when you see someone else, when it costs them something to wait on the Lord or to trust the Lord or to follow the Lord. Do they push through that and keep following the Lord? It's a great test of devotion. Like, for example, we know uh, you probably know someone who says they're genuine in their faith, but then they might choose their politics over their faith. Or maybe they, they choose their economic situation or their economic well-being over their faith, right? Th- those are tests to determine where are we really in following the Lord. Uh, th- there's a pastor here in, in the DFW area, and um, his his son is, is living a, an open uh, uh, lifestyle that is clearly contrary to the teaching of God's Word. It, it's clear. The, the Bible is clear on this lifestyle. And it's been interesting as the years have gone by, th- this pastor has has really chosen to accept his son's sinful lifestyle over what the Bible clearly teaches about it. So he's compromised in his devotion, right? Like he is choosing that instead of waiting on the Lord. It's costing him something. But what did did waiting cost Saul? Like looking back at that passage, the people are beginning to scatter, right? Soldiers are scattering. Now, now to be fair on, on Saul, he is facing an overwhelming foe. In other words, for every Israelite soldier that leaves him, the Philistines get stronger. So his fear is justified. Okay, And, and I think we have to be careful on this point because it, it's easy to read the Bible and kind of roll your eyes at, you know, at, at how unfaithful they are. But we need to look at Saul and recognize that his fear is justified. The problem is is that it's a test if he fears the Lord more. Do you see that? The fear is real. And it's not a crazy fear. It's a legitimate fear. He is charged with defending the nation. And they're about to get wiped out. He was justifiably fearful. The problem was that he feared the Philistines more than he feared the Lord. That's what it cost him. There's another problem with waiting on the Lord that makes waiting on the Lord so difficult. It goes against our fleshly desires. We want what we want and we want it right now, right? And this is what he is facing, okay? Now, again, this is not a this is not a silly fear. It's not a silly thing that he wants. It, it's a good thing that he wants. He wants to defeat the Philistines. He wants to protect his nation. It's not a a bad thing that he wants. But at the end of the day, God is calling him to wait. Now notice, he's willing to wait seven days, but not eight. Is that where your devotion is? I'll go this far, God, but I'm not going to go this far. The point here is that's not faithfulness. Do you see that? If you pick and choose what you want to follow or if you're only going to follow him this far or for this long, then that is categorically described as foolishness. It's unfaithfulness here. And I'm going to go so far as to say this too. What is going on in Saul's heart clearly is that he's willing to jump through the religious hoops for a season if he's able to get what he really wants. Does he really want to faithfully follow the Lord? Or does he really want to defeat the Philistines? You see, he's using burnt offerings, peace offerings, the prophet, to get to where he really wants to go. Do you see that? He's using his religion to accomplish something else. Friends, that's called superstition, not spiritual maturity. Okay, That's by definition what's going on here. That's where his heart is. His, his heart's true desire is this thing over here, and he's going to use God, use religion to get there. But when it doesn't go the way that he wants... He's willing to abandon the religion over here. Do you identify with Saul's struggle here? I, I do. I'm, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I totally get this. I totally get this tension. You see, th- there's times when we want something. We even want something good, and it's frustrating to wait on God to give it to us, right? Have, have you ever prayed for healing, but we're told to wait on him? Have you ever prayed for a relationship to be reconciled, but God didn't snap his fingers and it was all roses after that? Waiting is really hard, right? Let me give you one more uh, reason why waiting on the Lord is difficult. Another reason why waiting on the Lord is so difficult is there's always going to be people around you that think it's foolish that you're waiting on the Lord. You're going to hear a lot of voices saying how foolish it is to wait on the Lord. No doubt King Saul had this going on. No doubt his generals were pulling him aside and saying, we're at day seven, guys are leaving, Philistines are coming, can you just go do this? Can can you just check this religious box so that we can move on and get, get to the business of fighting the Philistines? No doubt there were voices in his life telling him that he was foolish for waiting on the Lord. Do you see that? That's the same as it is today. If you, if you are going to walk faithful with the Lord, you're going to have these voices telling you that it's foolishness. Have you heard those voices? Like Have you, like you had a coworker that tells you it's ridiculous to wait on the Lord? Do you have a friend or a, maybe even a family member who encourages you to compromise and says you're just being foolish by, by waiting faithfully on the Lord? Friend, I promise you, if you haven't heard those voices yet, They are coming. If you're going to walk faithfully with the Lord, those voices are going to come and they're going to tell you how foolish you are. Well, how did King Saul respond? Look look at verse 12. There was a cost to this, there was a cost of waiting. It went against his fleshly desires. There were voices telling him he was foolish. And then in verse 12, we read, I forced myself. There it is, right? That's how he responded. Waiting on the Lord was not accomplishing his heart's desire, so King Saul forced his will. Waiting on the Lord wasn't happening in his timeline. It wasn't happening the way he wanted. The door wasn't opening. God wasn't opening the door for him the way he wanted, so he decided to kick it open. Forcing our will means that we seek to accomplish what we want when we want it in our own strength. That's what it means that he forced himself. It means being willing to compromise what God wants for what we want. It means maybe justifying what we're doing uh, as even good. It means that we're willing to to speak to God, but not really listen to God. I I have so many illustrations of this, but um, I have found waiting on the Lord incredibly difficult. And this might sound weird that a pastor would say it's hard to wait on the Lord. But waiting on the Lord in ministry I have found incredibly difficult. And I had a whole illustration here, but then I thought of all these other ones. But uh, th- this weekend, Krista and I were talking with Jessica Bertrand, and we're like, okay, this is one of the, the greatest examples of waiting on the Lord th- that I've experienced in a long time. We, if you um, are new with us, we, um, we, were, we had uh, brought on an interim uh, uh, worship leader and it was a part-time role, and we were, we're trying to build a staff here, and so we, were, we had a part-time student pastor. We were trying to get him to full-time, so we made this position part-time, and, and we had uh, somebody come in. Mark did a faithful job. He was our interim uh, worship leader, but we went through a search process, and, and and Daniel actually applied for that position. If you remember a few years back, Daniel came in and, and led worship for us, and, and Jessica came in with the kids, and, and we just fell in love with them quickly. We, we, we loved Mark as well. We loved the Bertrands as well, but what was going on there is the Bertrands were in a full-time ministry position. And he was applying for a part-time ministry position. So they were willing to to take uh, to work outside of this, a full-time job, and then come to this. But, but it was going to be a, a stretch, okay? Like, it was a very sacrificial thing that they were doing. And, and we as an elder team wrestled with this. We, we weren't sure what to do. And we landed on, you know what? We're going to try to live within our means here. You know, we want to take care of people the best we can. We, we, just, need, we just need to wait. We need to wait on this. And, and by God's grace, God had brought Mark Clements to us, and Mark led let us faithfully for a year. When Mark came to us and said, hey, I think God's calling me back into full-time ministry, the elder team was like, man, we just went through this whole process. What is God doing here? And I remember distinctly Mike said in a meeting, hey, uh, what, what's up with Daniel Bertrand? <laughs> and I said, funny you ask. I actually looked up on the website, and yeah, he's still there. We posted the position, and and the day after we posted it, Daniel called me. And I said, it's funny you called. He goes, do you remember me? I go, oh, yeah. I said, I was going to give you one more day, and then I was going to call you. And God worked all of that to where then God eventually brought Daniel to be our worship pastor. Listen, I tell you that story because for me, it was a great example of just waiting on the Lord, and God's going to orchestrate things in the way that he wants them to orchestrate them, okay? Listen I find this very difficult. I tend towards forcing my will on things. I tend towards kicking open doors instead of waiting on the Lord. And for me, that little scenario, all those little things that happened in that moment were a great reminder of the virtues of just waiting on the Lord. It's foolishness to exert your will. Now listen, if you go back to the passage in in verse 13, notice that the prophet says to the king, you have done foolishly. And this comes right after all the voices are saying how foolish it is to wait on the prophet. But now the prophet is saying, you have done foolishly. There's a paradox there, right? But many times what the world says is wise, God says is foolish. Many times what God says is wise, the world says as foolish. Young people, I want to tell you something important, and I'm going to uh, and, and not only am I going to tell you what's, what I think is important here, but I also want to tell you how to validate it, okay, if you're questioning if it's true. Here's what I want to say. When you wait on the Lord, even when you, you desire to force your will, God will bless you in that. Now, I'm not talking health, wealth, prosperity. It's not going to make you a millionaire if you wait, okay? It's not that you're never going to have struggles after that. But if you wait on the Lord, He will bless you. And hear the flip of this. If you don't wait on the Lord, if you rather force your will, God, it opens you up to God disciplining you. Now, let me tell you how to validate this if you don't believe me, young people. Find someone in this church that has has some gray hair, maybe some thinning hair, but they've walked with Jesus for a long time, and you really trust them. Go ask them if that's true. And even ask them, hey, are, are, do you have stories of that, All these illustrations of God remaining faithful. I promise you they will have all these examples of their lives. Of, of waiting on the Lord when it was hard. And they didn't want to. And then there were all these examples of God being faithful to them. Young person, if you're wondering which way you should go. Find someone who's walked with Jesus longer than you. And they can validate it. Old people, amen. Mike, amen. God is faithful to His people. And if you will wait on Him, He will be faithful to you. In King Saul's case, the discipline that came was that he rejected his royal lineage. So this is the divine discipline is that Saul was going to be replaced. Replaced with who? What's the great characteristic of this prince that's going to follow him? In verse 14, it's a man after my heart. That's what God says to the prophet. He wants a man after his heart. Implicit in that is that King Saul is not a man after God's heart. He's halfway devoted. He'll go seven days, but he's got a limit to his devotion. God wants someone who doesn't have limits to his devotion, who is willing to wait on the Lord, especially Uh, when he was tempted to force his will. That's the characteristic that God was looking for in you and me. It's the characteristic he was looking for in a king. And, and, And if that king refused to do that, he opened himself up to divine discipline. The third movement in this story, starting going back to the back half of verse 15, is that waiting on the Lord affects others. Verse 15 says, And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men, And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Orpah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down to the valley of Zebarom toward the wilderness. Now, let me stop there. Look. Looking at a map of ancient Israel, what the Philistines are doing is they're kind of securing roads and, and securing uh, the, this town of Michmash where they were. Now again, Israel is a very small country and all of this is only happening with, within miles of each other. Look at 19 to 23. And now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, "Lest least the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his maddock, his axe, his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the maddocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and, and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the, garrison of the, and the garrison of the Philistines went out uh, to the pass of Michmash. Apparently what's going on here is the Philistines had, had uh, more developed technology. They had better weapons. And what they had done successfully, apparently, is, is build this embargo against the nation of Israel so that they couldn't develop these weapons. The scene here is, is that the Israelites are outnumbered and they're outgunned. And they're using literally uh, uh, farm tools in order to fight them. Now, the state of the story where it ends in chapter 13, it reminds us that waiting on the Lord affects others. So when we force our will like the king did, it can have these negative impacts on those around him. And it's the same thing for us today. When you choose to unfaithfully not wait on the Lord, it's going to impact those around you as Americans, we struggle with this tension on individualism. Certainly, we're individuals. You're, you're saved as an individual, and there's virtues about individualism. However, we can, as Americans, sometimes take it so far as if our individualism doesn't affect anybody else. The things that we that we do or how we live or how we think, that doesn't really affect anybody else, but that's not true. Like what you believe and how you live, it affects the ones you love the most. You see, mature godly people take into consideration how their beliefs and actions impact those around them. The final lesson of 1 Samuel 13 is that waiting on the Lord affects other people. Now listen, as King Saul has experienced, and no doubt you have experienced, is that when you wait on the Lord, it costs you something. Also, when you wait on the Lord, it goes against your fleshly desires. You want what you want, and you want it right now. And it goes against those fleshly desires, and it's also foolishness in the eyes of the world. Waiting is hard. However, hear me, waiting is not bad. Waiting is actually good. Students, if uh, you're waiting to be adults and to have greater freedom, don't force your will, but wait on the Lord. Young adults, as you wait on the direction you should take, don't force your will, but wait on the Lord. Parents, as you wait to hit a certain number or, or to or wondering how your children are going to fare, don't force your will, but wait on the Lord. Friends, as you wait for those test results, don't force your will, but wait on the Lord. John Piper has a great explanation on on waiting on the Lord. He says that waiting on the Lord is the opposite of running ahead of the Lord, and it's the opposite of bailing out on the Lord. It's staying at your appointed place while he says stay or it's going at His appointed pace while He says go. But how do we do that? We've established it's hard. But but what's the good news here? The good news is when God calls you to wait, God is working in that moment. He's working in that season. When He calls you to wait, God is working. I'll give you one verse on this. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, Jesus died to give you sufficient grace, even sufficient grace to wait and to grow in that waiting season. He is working in that moment in your life. If you're waiting on something, God is working in that moment. You see, He's he's working to sanctify you. He's making you more patient. He's making you trust Him more. He's given you a divine and eternal perspective that maybe you didn't have before. He, he's drawing you closer to Him. He's conforming you into His image. Wait on the Lord, especially when you want to force your will. Because if you don't, you're going to miss out on those blessings. And you're going to open yourselves up to, to, to not being sanctified, but being stunted in your spiritual life. Don't run from the waiting. God is graciously working when you're, when you're waiting. I'm going to back to that couple who was adopting that sweet girl, Steve and Sarah, they, they finally were able to get their, their daughter home. But once they got back to America, she says that that's really where the season of waiting began. You see, they, they knew it wouldn't be easy, but they just didn't realize how difficult it would be. They didn't realize how difficult it would be to, to raise an adopted daughter who was uh, ethnically different than theirs. They, they didn't realize how difficult it was going to be for her to, to fit into this new culture and the challenges that came there. They didn't realize how difficult it was. On top of all of that, she was struggling with feeling abandoned by her birth parents. You see, this journey of adopting, it was hard. But, but the journey of raising her, that was even more difficult. You see, Sarah wanted all these things. She, she longed to be close to her daughter. She, she longed for her daughter to be happy. She longed for her home to be peaceful. But none of that was happening, and she was having to wait on the Lord. She was in this new season of waiting. But, but once again, like she did in, in that hotel room in Africa... She decided not to run from the waiting. She, she tried to push into it. Okay, what, what, what is God trying to do here? Once again, she trusted God and, and, and didn't run from waiting on Him. She went deeper in her relationship with God. God actually drew her, her closer to Himself. She, she grew in ways that she hadn't grown before. You see, she had tried so many ways to kind of force her will on her daughter so her daughter would be happy. And it blew up every time and she learned to trust the Lord with her daughter's heart. She, she, prayed for the, uh, she prayed to the Lord uh, that, that, that God would change her heart and help her just to be happy and not angry. Instead of running from her daughter's unhappiness, she, she, and, and, and instead of trying to control it, she asked God to give her the strength to shepherd her daughter and, and to, to be patient with her and sacrificially love her, especially when it was hard. What she found is she was becoming more patient. She was becoming more loving. Sarah also says that she really struggled with a lot of entitlement at that time. She did so much for her daughter. Done so much. And here she just seemed so ungrateful. But even in that, she pushed into that. And she pushed into, okay, I don't have peace in my home. I don't have peace in this relationship. But she pushed into her relationship with God and found peace there. And through that, God helped her sacrificially love her family while also gaining abundant life. And she didn't slide into bitterness over it all. Prince, poor King Saul teaches us this: the importance of waiting on the Lord. It's hard. It costs something. It goes against our fleshly desires. It, 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 it's going to be foolish to those around us, but fight the desire to force your will. Friend, Jesus died, He died in order to give you grace that is sufficient for everything that you need. Whatever you're waiting for right now, He died to give you the grace to wait wait on the lord especially when you want to force your will amen let's pray father god I, I thank you for this story as tragic and as heartbreaking as it is you're teaching us so many good things in that moment lord may we be a people that that wait on you that we would wait when it's when it's hard to wait no matter what we're facing father i pray that we would just push into Our walk with You, that we would trust You. If You cause us to wait seven days or seven years or 70 years, that we would just wait on You, that we would wait on Your will and for You to work. But in that, Lord, help us to believe that You are working, that Your grace is sufficient, that You're working good, and all of that, that You're with us and that You're for us. Lord, encourage us with those gospel truths and empower us to wait according to Your will. It's in Jesus' name we will pray.